0: Well, it's good to be back. I want to thank Steve for filling in. For those that thought we went to a warm climate, we didn't. We went up north. And so uh, we came back to the warm weather here. And so uh, we did have a nice time off. And uh, we're glad to be back. I don't like to use the word revive or revival. And uh, one of the reasons is because Kind of implies dying or dead. I listened to a news report recently, within the last few weeks or a few days, about a hockey player, and I believe played for the St. Louis Blues, who was involved in a hockey game, skated over to the bench, and he went over and sat down. And as he sat down on that bench, you could see he began to collapse paramedics and team trainers all rushed to his side. And you can see them doing CPR on him, but they revived him. They brought him back, and he was, that was the interview I heard him talking about the impact that it was going to have on his life. But in some ways, revival or reviving or revive is a good thing. And that's what I want to talk about today. Because I believe that that's what is needed today in our lives. Webster defines revival as a renewed attention to something, a renewed interest and performance, a religious awakening, a reanimation from apathy, a restoration of consciousness, and a renewal of spirit. And if you listen to that definition, Isn't that what our nation needs? Isn't that what the brotherhood of the churches of Christ need? Isn't that what this congregation needs? Isn't that what we need in our homes? Isn't that what we need as an individual? If the church is going to continue to be the kingdom of God, then we need to have a revival. We are to be the people that God wants us to be. And for that to happen, each one of us needs to be determined in our lives to be what God would have us to be and to conduct ourselves out in the world the way God expects us to conduct ourselves. Jesus reminds us that we're the salt of the earth and that we're the light of the world. There should be something different about you and I as we go out in this world, when we go into the workplace, when we go to our schools, when we're in our neighborhoods, when we're dealing with people on the outside of the church. People should be able to see that there's something different about us. And so yes, we need a revival. We need to be revived. And we're going to look at one that took place today. I hope you opened your Bibles to Acts chapter two. If you haven't opened your Bibles to Acts chapter two, if you did not bring a Bible with you, there should be one in the rack in front of you. Take that Bible out and look at Acts chapter two, because that's where we're going to be talking. What we're going to be talking about? Not a revival of a country, but a revival that took place in the city of Jerusalem, where people were awakened, where people rose up and did the right thing. Because the Gospel of Christ had been preached. And we'll see on this occasion that yes, we can change the world. And yes, they did change the world. We've allowed the world to defeat us in saying that we can't change the world. We can change the world just like they did. In fact, if you read over further into Acts, guess what it says? Those people that have turned the world upside down have come hither. So don't tell me that we can't change the world. The question is, are you ready? Do you want to change the world that we live in? Do you want to change your life? Well, the question is, if we're ready, then what do we need to do? Well, first of all, for revival to begin... There must be a sense of God's power and presence in our lives. In Acts chapter 2, we find God at work. And if you look at verse 16, it says, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh. What had happened, if you read in the early part of that chapter, you can see where the Holy Spirit had descended upon the apostles. And they begin to speak in tongues, other languages that people could understand. And they needed to be able to do that so people could understand the gospel that Peter was going to stand up, I believe in chapter 11, and start to, or verse 11, and start to proclaim. But they had been accused of being full of new wine because of what had taken place. And Peter stands up and he says, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. That in the last days, this was what was going to take place. And so we see God at work in this situation. That God had proved that Jesus was His Son. God had proved that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior. He had proved the deity of Jesus. That He was God in the flesh. And He did that by miraculous signs and wonders. What God did and was doing was the fulfillment of prophecy. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, it says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. So God proved who Jesus was by the signs and miracles that had taken place. We talked a couple of weeks ago about what Jesus did, how He had raised the dead, how He had healed the sick. And all of those things were to prove that He was the Son of God. That wasn't His purpose for coming to the earth. His purpose to come to this earth was to seek and to save the lost. And so He did that, and God proved that He was from God by signs and miracles. We also see that in verse 23 that Jesus dying on the cross was preordained or planned by God. In verse 23 it says, "...him being delivered by a determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain." So we see the power of God at work. We see the plan that God had from the foundations of the world that Jesus would come to this earth and that He would die for the sins of mankind we see that that was fulfilled. And that was God's plan and purpose for Jesus to come to the earth. We find in verses 24 and verse 32 that it was the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. It tells us in verse 24, "...whom God hath raised up, being loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be holden of it." And then down in verse 32 it says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. I don't know if you know it or not. Most of us do. But what Paul or Peter is preaching here is the gospel of Christ. The fact that Jesus died, that he died for our sins, and that he was buried, and that he arose victorious over the grave. That was the plan that God had. And that was the plan that Jesus said that the apostles were to go into the world and preach. We see that God had exalted Him to a position of authority at the right hand of God. In verse 33 of that same chapter, "...therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear." So Jesus comes to this earth. He dies on the cross and He dies for the sins of man. Why should people believe that? Well, the reason is because God had proved that He was the Messiah by those miracles that were being performed or had been performed. He proved that Jesus was His Son. And Jesus has died and now He is in a position of authority. And in fact, in verse 36... It says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified both Lord and Christ. So here we see in this very short sermon, about 25 verses, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose victorious over the grave, and he's now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, and that God has made him both Lord and Christ. There will be no revival in our nation, in our church, personally, until we acknowledge that God is at work in our lives and in, in the church. That was necessary to see God at work on the day of Pentecost. Why is that important? Because when we leave God out, guess what? We die. We wilt away, just like that flower, those flowers in that pot that we saw there in that first picture. We kind of wilt away. We're nothing. If Jesus is not who He claimed to be, Paul says we are of all people most miserable. And so Peter is proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. And until we restore God to His rightful place in our lives, We must know that visiting once a week isn't going to do that. And until we put God first in our lives, there's not going to be a revival. It isn't something that we do on Sunday morning. It isn't something that we do on Sunday night. It's not enough just to be here when the doors are open. It is something that needs to take place in our lives every single day. Look at what it says in verse 46. In verse 46, it tells us there, "...and they continuing daily with one accord in a temple and in breaking of bread from house to house, they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved." They continued daily. They did that daily. And until we acknowledge that God is active in our lives and make Him a a priority in our everyday life, we're not going to awake. We're not going to be revived. We'll just continue to exist. You look at the church in Jerusalem and you can see a difference. About 3,000 souls that were baptized. You can read on that there was a multitude that were baptized. There, and then you can see that there was about 4,000. And I've read estimates where they say that there was about twenty-five to 30,000 people that obeyed the Gospel in the city of Jerusalem. Now tell me we can't change the world. Tell me you can't change the world. Should it be any different for us today? Shouldn't God be active in our lives every single day? Shouldn't He be a priority on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, along with the first day of the week? Or do we prefer that God stay here at the church building and we visit Him when we want to? If we want to consider this His home. You know, we can just go visit Him at the home. No, we want to take Him home with us. We want to take Him to work with us. We want to take Him to school with us. We want to take Him everywhere we go. Why? Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 31, "...whether therefore we eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God." Can you find something that's any more simpler than eating and drinking? We all do that, don't we? We eat and we, we, we drink fluid. But Paul says even when you do that, glorify God. Let God be seen in that. Be thankful for the food that you have. Let people know that God has blessed you. Realize that when you're partaking of that food that we eat in the morning and afternoon and evening. In fact, we're supposed to do all in the name of the Lord. God must be ever-present in our family life, in our business activities, in our entertainment choices, in the churches, and in everything that we do in this life. So we need to recognize the presence of God and His power. That he can still move and work today if we will allow him into our lives. Second, for revival to occur, Jesus must be preached. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. He realized the power of that gospel. It was that gospel that Jesus had gone to all the world to preach, and it's that gospel that we see preached here on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17, Paul said, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. It's amazing when people read that passage of Scripture that a lot of people, all they get out of that is that Paul wasn't sent to baptize. Well, guess what? None of us were sent to baptize. We're sent to teach. And as a result of that teaching, people obey the Gospel. Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So what's He saying? We go teach. We go and we preach. And when people want to be obedient to that Gospel message, then guess what? We baptize them into Christ as a result of those things that we taught them from God's Word. The focus of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 is Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is the focus of the entire Bible. I don't have time to go back in the Old Testament and look at all the, the things that are said about Jesus. But John chapter 3 and verse 16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul says, or Peter says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The message is that Jesus is the answer to the sin problem that we have in our lives. That without Christ dying on the cross, you and I would be lost. And so we see the love that God had in extending His Son to die on the cross so that you and I could have the forgiveness of sin. If you read the rest of the book of Acts, I want you to do that, but notice when they preach sermons in that book, what do they preach? They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would be hard-pressed to find a message where they're not talking about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the important message. Why? Because that's what He did for your sins and my sins and all of mankind's sins. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, for I'm determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. For revival to come to the church, here at our congregation, or anywhere else for that matter, we must preach Jesus Christ. The focus must be upon him. Sermons on issues, activities, methods, social graces. They have their place. But none of them tells us what we need to do to be saved. They may help us keep saved, but they don't tell us how to be saved. Think about when I talked about or had a series on the fruits of the, the fruit of the Spirit. That just tells us how to be a faithful Christian. It doesn't tell us how to become a Christian. The gospel message is what tells us what we need to do. <clears throat> and all those things are good. But preaching Christ and Him crucified is the only thing that can save souls. The Jerusalem revival began with a sermon on Jesus. A sermon on His death on the cross. His burial and His resurrection. And their proper response to the grace that God was going to extend to them. (coughs) That's what we need to hear from our pulpits around this world, across this nation. The gospel of Christ is the only thing that can make this world better. You think about it. You got a lot of politicians out there today that are promising the moon. None of that's going to save your soul. Only the gospel of Christ. That's what people need to hear. That's what we as Christians need to be telling others they need to do to be saved. Third, revival occurs when we see our genuine need and that is the forgiveness of sin. Those in that crowd, that multitude that was gathered there in Acts chapter 2, responded to the sermon with this question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They realized the situation that they were in. They realized that they were sinners that they were helpless, that they were hopeless, and that they needed forgiveness. I've said it before, we need to understand that when we sin, at some point we stop. We may say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I repent. And I change. I change my whole life. But I still have to deal with all of those sins that I've committed in the past. They still need to be taken care of. And that's what baptism does. Baptism washes away those sins through the blood of Christ. And as a Christian, when we sin, that blood of Christ cleanses us again. Of course, we have to take care of it the way God has told us to in His Word. But these individuals on this day realize the situation that they were in. Brethren, we need to realize the situation that we are in. That we cannot rid ourselves of sin without the blood of Christ. Our pride cannot take care of us. That we are unprofitable servants to God when we've done all that is our duty to do. We are relying upon the blood of Christ. And sometimes I think we miss that point. God expects us to work. He expects us to do things. Take on the responsibility that He's given us as a Christian. But all those works in the world are not going to save our soul. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us. You know, we hear, I'm okay, you're okay, you go your way, I'll go my way, and we're both going to get there. Well, if that's the case, then why did Jesus die on the cross? If everybody's okay, then why did Jesus go to the cross and die? Why did He say, upon this rock, I will build my church, if all churches are okay? You see, we're sinners and we need God's grace. Not just one time at baptism, but we need God's grace daily. We acknowledge our sin as we strive to walk in the light as He is in the light. And when we sin as a Christian, we confess that sin to God and ask His forgiveness. And He is faithful and just to forgive us. And I believe that one of the major contributors to our apathy in the church today is the idea that we can do it all by ourselves we can somehow save ourselves. In fact, Peter said that. Save yourselves from His untoward generation. My friend, listen. The only way that we can save ourselves is heeding the words that Jesus spoke. And that is by being baptized into Christ. Believing that He is the Son of God. Turning away from our sins. And then having our sins washed away by His blood. We don't have the resources to forgive sin. We never have. It's only the blood of Christ. And we must come to God with a broken and contrite heart. We must have the attitude that Paul had, oh, wretched man that I am. And I must be coming, admitting, acknowledging, and confessing my sin in response to God's grace. <clears throat> all of our works, all of our corporate righteousness cannot forgive sin. Only the blood of Christ. And do we know why <clears throat> and do we know why churches have no revival today? Because we won't admit our sin. We don't want to say we've sinned. In fact, that's one of the hardest things for people to do. In fact, if you go back in the Old Testament, you will find very few individuals that when they're confronted with their sin will say that I have sinned. Most will come up with some excuse of why they did what they did. And isn't that what we hear quite often today? It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. Our pride just will not allow us to say... I have sinned before God. And when that happens, there can be no revival. Number four, there must be obedience. Peter's response to the cry of what shall we do was two things. What were they? Repentance, become a changed person, change your life, turn and put your trust and faith in Christ, the one that you just crucified, you now need to repent and trust Him with your soul. Trust Him with your salvation. Trust Him with your very being. And then you need to submit to baptism. When I say New Testament baptism, I mean baptism like we see in the New Testament, where we go down into the water and we come up out of the water. Just like it represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it represents the death of that old man of sin going down and coming up a new creature, a new person. That's what baptism is. It washes away our sin and then Peter says there's a promise that goes with that that we'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the salvation. That's the promise that we have of what the Holy Spirit will do for us as individuals. There's no miraculous measure there. God has always demanded obedience of His people. The (coughs) The prophet told Saul... To obey is better than sacrifice. Brethren, it's not a works religion. It's just simply complying complying with what God has told us that we need to do in order to be saved. Trusting Him. Our coming to worship three times a week pleases God. But without any effort at daily obedience to all of His commands is a mockery and hypocrisy. He expects us to live it every day, not just when we're in this building. Verse 41 speaks of their obedience. It says, "...then they that gladly received His Word were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They heard the message. It pricked their hearts They cried, men and brethren, what shall we do? And what did Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Do you notice he mentioned earlier in that sermon about calling on the name of the Lord? If calling on the name of the Lord is all I need to do to be saved, then why did Peter say repent and be baptized? Because, I'll tell you, when we repent and we're baptized, we are calling on the name of the Lord. We're calling on the Lord to do exactly what He said He would do if we will comply to the conditions that He's put forth. And that's why Ananias said to Saul, Why tarryest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. God says, if this is what you do, then this is what I will do. If you will uh, obey the Gospel, then I will wash away your sins. And when we obey the Gospel, that means we believe, we repent, we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and then we're buried with our Lord in baptism. And when we do that, then we have the promise of salvation. We must also be faithful. And that's part of the responsibility that we have in the church. And that's what we see here when they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. James tells us that hearing... Revival messages or sermons is not enough. It's not enough today to just talk about it. It's not enough to just say, yeah, that would work. James tells us that we need to be doers of the word. In James chapter 1, verse 25. But be doers of the work. This And when we do that, this man shall be blessed. Don't be a forgetful hearer. In other words, don't listen and then forget everything that you heard. Go on your way and keep doing what you've been doing. Realize that God is there. He's real. That He has a power and that He has a presence in our life if we will allow Him to do so. James chapter 2, verse 26. For as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Could James have made it any plainer? We've all, many of us in this room, have lost loved ones, and we see the difference in that individual when that spirit leaves that body. It doesn't feel the same. Doesn't act the same. It's not the same because it's dead. And James says that's what faith without works is. It's like a person whose spirit has left them. We must be obedient to the gospel message. Preaching is great, but genuine New Testament revival becomes a reality only in obedience to the message. Fifth in Acts chapter two and verse forty two it says they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. We look at that revival that took place there in Jerusalem. That fire never went out. It did not flicker. They maintained their excitement for Jesus. They continued their faithfulness and their commitment. And they remained faithful even in the face of persecution. They were on fire. Many that obeyed the gospel, their family would have turned their back on them because of the response to the gospel message. It was something new, something different. But yet with enthusiasm, they accepted and obeyed the gospel. They accepted the message that Peter preached. And they changed their life. In fact, in Acts chapter 8 verses 1-4, through we find that when persecution arose, they went everywhere preaching the Word. Were they on fire? Were they excited about the presence of God in their life? Were they excited about the Gospel message that their sins could be washed away? Couldn't keep them quiet. They went everywhere spreading that message. Revival brought about continued faithfulness, a continued commitment, because it tells us that they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in togetherness, in the Lord's Supper, and in prayer. We're not just talking about Sunday morning going to church, faithfulness. We're talking about a continual faithfulness, a daily faithfulness that makes a difference, a commitment that makes a difference in our life, a commitment to Jesus Christ. This is a word we don't like to use. But in verse 43, it says, "...and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles." I believe that New Testament revival demands that we fear God. That we hold Him in awe. That we realize that yes, He did those miracles. Yes, His Son died on the cross. Yes, He created this universe. And yes, He is a force that we're going to deal with at the end of our life. We want to stay away from that. We're supposed to fear God. That is supposed to be a healthy respect for God. Well, that sounds really nice and beautiful. But let me just say this. I'm sure that all of us have been in the presence of someone that we knew held our uh, fate in their hands. Are you afraid of a police officer? I'm not afraid of a police officer. But when they pull me over, guess what? I realize they have the power that they can take me out and slam me up against the car and put the cuffs on me and haul me away. So I have a healthy respect in the sense that I'm in awe of what they can do. I realize that I will have to deal with Him if I speed or if I do something that I'm not supposed to. And the same is true with God that when I violate His law, I may get away with it today, I may get away with it tomorrow, but eventually I'm going to stand before Him. And when we see all the things that He does and has done, all the things that He's created, shouldn't that cause us to look and say, Oh, I, I that's, it's a marvel at how powerful He is. And I'm going to stand at the judgment before his son. Imagine if you were one of those individuals that drove the nails through the hands of Jesus, or shoved that spear into his side, or spit on him, or laughed at him. Would you be afraid of God? You know, we've all done that. Maybe not physically. But we've crucified Him afresh. And the Scripture says that everyone, everyone was filled with fear. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. You see, the church (coughs) saw God all around them both in the miraculous and in the non-miraculous manner. How many of us stand in fear of God today? How many of us really look at God as more like the old happy grandfather who's just there to say good job and pat you on the head? How many of us look at God as like Santa Claus who just gives us whatever we want? That He's just there. But how many of us stand in awe of His divine nature and His providential workings in our world? Do we see Him in the sunrise and the sunset? Or do we just take Him for granted for those things? Do we see Him in the face of brothers and sisters in Christ when we look at them? Perhaps if we did see God in their face, we wouldn't talk about Him behind their back. In the healings that take place in our bodies and in our souls, do we insist that it's the doctors that do that and the counselors get credit for healing our bodies and forgiving our guilt? Do we see Him working all around all the things that take place in our lives for good to benefit us? As it teaches us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, or do we attribute those things to luck and good fortune? If we listen to us talk, it becomes evident that few stand in awe of God today. We speak of being lucky, we speak of fate. We speak of karma. We speak of fortune. We knock on wood. We cross our fingers. And I'm convinced that there's no genuine revival in our person or in the church until we fear a hold in awe the Almighty God. You see, there's just no way that we can accomplish God's work without a sense of His power in our lives to His presence in our lives. You know, the Bible tells us where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. He's here. But how many of us really believe that? Number six. We need a sense of community. All the believers were together and had everything common. You see, the Scripture tells us that the church of Christ is the body of Christ, it is the family of God, it is the household of God, and that this revival brought about a sense of unity, a togetherness, a one-anotherness. And they were willing to share. The early church operated under the premise of what is mine is mine, but it's yours if you need it. They They didn't have to give what they gave. Barnabas did not have to sell his property. Ananias and Sapphira did not have to sell their property. It was theirs to use the way they wanted to use while it was in their control. And so that teaches us that we don't have to make a a, a commune or something of that nature, but they realized that if someone was in need, they were willing to take what they had and to use it. They had a sense of family, and they should, because that's what they were. Modern-day religion or revivals in our churches have been paralyzed by self-centeredness, by competition between members, and things of that nature. Today, we think of the church that it's all about me. It exists for me. Today, we have a sense of what is mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it all <clears throat> and keep it at all costs. My money's mine, my time is mine, my talent's mine, my position is mine, so don't ask me to use it or to share it with anybody. Go home and read Philippians chapter 8 or chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And there you see the attitude that Jesus had. Tells us that that's the attitude that you and I should have. We will not have a New Testament revival today until we have the mind that Christ had. Until we have Him in our lives, we're not going to change. Until we realize that we are servants, that we are united because we are family, that we are the family of God, and that we are together. And finally, Let's ask the question, what is the results of genuine revival? I think verse 47 tells us. <clears throat> Look at it again. First of all, God is praised. Praising God and having favor with all the people. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus said, "...it were the salt of the earth, the light of the world." Verse 14, He says, "...Ye are the light of the world." Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 on. Do people see God in your life? Do they see a change in your life? Number two, the church was respected. Do you know why the church is not respected today? Because there is no revival. The world can't tell the difference between us and them. We all look alike. The Jerusalem church impacted the world, the world changed. Jerusalem was never the same we've bought into the idea that we cannot change the world. The problem is we've allowed the world to change us, to change the church. What did Paul write to the Romans? The church at Rome? Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be like the world. You be different from the world. But how many of us tomorrow when we go out into the workplace, go out into school, go out into our community, we're going to act just like everybody else. We're going to do everything that everybody else does. We're going to talk like the world. We're going to laugh about the things that the world laughs at. And will never mention the word Jesus to anyone. Paul tells the Philippian church in Philippians chapter two and verse fifteen, and us by the way, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. They lived in a wicked world too, just like we live in a wicked world. But Paul expected them just like Jesus expected them to shine like lights, be different, stand out because of your faith in God. That doesn't mean that you have to walk around with with verses tattooed on your forehead. But people should see the difference in us. and the world. God help us to change our world. And third, not only was God praised and the church respected, but people were saved. In Acts 2, and verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Genuine revival results in the salvation of souls. You see that simple sermon that Peter preached. Now, I know He preached a little more than those 25 verses because it goes on to say with many other words that He testified. So He spoke other words. He said other things. But that message pricked their hearts. And it pricked their hearts to the point where they interrupted the sermon and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We must know that this morning... That Jerusalem was never the same. Those disciples were never the same. And that the world was never the same because of that event that took place on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And there is no doubt that the greatest need for our nation, for our churches, for our families, and in our personal lives is a New Testament revival in our hearts? Second <coughs> Chronicles chapter seven and verse fourteen says, "If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and will heal their land." <coughs> Brother, we need to take the message out to the world. We need to be determined from this day forward that we're going to be the salt of the earth, that we're going to be the light of the world, that we're going to let our light shine in this crooked and perverse world that we live in. We need to be determined that we respect the church to the point where we're willing to talk it up when we go out into the community and tell people about our Lord who died for our sins and their sins so that they can have that same hope that you and I have. The question is, do you have that hope? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a child of God. That same message that saves souls on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the same message that can save your soul today. That Jesus died for your sins, that He was buried, and that He rose victorious over the grave. <clears throat> and if you will die to your sin, and be buried with Him in baptism, you can have your sins washed away. Read Romans 6, verses 1-6, through and you see the picture what baptism represents. So this morning if you're not a Christian we would encourage you to become one if you have any questions I'd be more than happy to sit down and answer those questions. maybe you are a Christian and you haven't lived as you should. you haven't been that light you haven't been that salt and I would encourage you to change. don't just talk about it do it. You have that opportunity to come and have a seat up here on the front row while we stand and sing.